Now, we're coming close to the end of 1 John, and I don't know if you've noticed, but this letter likes to keep circling around certain themes. Now, this is actually quite um, normal practice because Jewish wisdom has this uh, style of circling in and out and around themes. And today, the focus I'd like to shine a light on in this passage I'm given is something really exciting. John reminds us that there are at least three things you'll get when we live a life of faith through and with Jesus. Now, these three things are love, victory, and eternal life. They sound pretty good. Am I right? Awesome. So we're just going to dive right in and find out, like, what is this love and victory and eternal life? So the first thing we'll talk about is that when we live a life of faith, we will live out a life of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love because God first loved us. Now, could this verse be the second most iconic verse in the Bible? Now, the first surely is... Exactly right. Yes, there's always the front people who are sort of like, they're so switched on. They're like, I'm just kidding. I'm sure you guys already knew the answer. I think the, the most iconic verse is John 3:16, And then John again takes home another trophy. We love because he first loved us. It's often quoted at weddings. It's a great line to encourage others. And it's such a great verse for preachers to use when we need to give a talk about love. John is teaching us some deep truths about love here. And this statement can be a bit offensive to some. Now, John is telling us two things. Firstly, that the source of love is God. And secondly, obedience to God is the fruit of love. So let me expand on, uh, on the first point. The source of love is God. And to start off, I'd like to give you an illustration so I have this friend, and many years ago, we're talking about like 10 plus years ago, my friend um, started dating this guy, and he happens to be a Christian. And they were dating, and probably I think like a year-ish later, unfortunately, they broke up. And of course, she was like devastated. And then after some time being single, and then she started dating another guy, and he happens to be a non-Christian. And then after they were dating for some time, one time, um, I was talking to her mom, and her mom tells me that she's so glad, like she's so much happier that her daughter is dating this non-Christian guy rather than her ex-Christian Christian ex-boyfriend. And so when she said it, though, it was just, uh, what she said was just really intriguing to me, that statement. Maybe more so how she said it and what she was implying. And for those who are curious, um, she did end up marrying him. And they recently had their, uh, had their first child. Now, what's so intriguing for me isn't that my friend ended up marrying a non-Christian. What's intriguing is thinking about why there are lots of non-Christians in this world who seem better and more loving than Christians. Christianity is meant to be all about love. Our most famous verse talks about how much God loved the world. Jesus lived out a life of love. 1 John and so many other books in the Bible preaches about love. Now, a very easy answer to all of this is one word, sin. Christians are repentant sinners, and so all of us were flawed. But it doesn't sound very satisfying, especially if you hear people like my friend's mom, who'd rather my friend date a non-Christian and marry this non-Christian guy because he knows how to love her daughter. 
If non-Christians do a better job than Christians when it comes to loving others, then what leg do we have to stand? Now, I thought about it uh, for a long time. And I think the answer lies in 1 John 4.19. By the way, I just made up this, um, that, um, I just made up the part about it's the second most iconic verse. It's probably not, but I know it's definitely very well known. So, 1 John 4.19. Non-Christians have the capability for love because God is the source of love. And we have seen God's love modeled to us, either through listening to the stories of Jesus or seeing others strive to live out God's love. And we are all made in the image of God. And so God's love is imprinted on us. Or in other words, when we experience unselfish love, from a non-Christian, that source of love actually comes from God, whether that person giving the love is aware of it or not. Do you guys get what I'm trying to say? The love of God is inescapable. We've experienced love from our parents, friends, a romantic partner, a teacher, a leader, or even our own children. But we need to remember that they were able to give that act of love unselfishly for two possible reasons. So the first one is that it's in our DNA because we're all made in the image of God. Or secondly, we've seen it modeled to us because that person has seen it modeled to them, which that other person who modeled it to them in the first place have also seen someone else model it to them, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it goes all the way back to the very, very beginning. You guys get what I'm trying to say, yes? A Christian, however, is meant to love more purely because we can see that the source of love comes from God. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can learn how to truly love God and others by going directly to the source, God himself. Amen? When we live a life of faith, we'll live a life of love. And it's a really exciting life to live because when you live a life of love, you're also tasting the love of God. Isn't that so cool? And so let's, let's start loving people, yeah? The second point I want to expand on under my first heading of love is that obedience to God is the fruit of love. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 to 3 says, This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. Often we'll read in the Bible that God is constantly reminding us to obey his word. Yes? Those who don't understand the Bible would see it as God being like a broken record and maybe a control freak that demands his people to follow his commandments. Now what people don't see is that God's heart is to give us the very best. And so all the commandments in the Bible comes from this desire. God wants to give us the best. You have to trust in this. Now, Jesus teaches us that if we love him and we trust him, we will obey his commands because we'll realize that it's good for you. Let me give you another illustration. So um, I used to teach uh, script, like this is in, uh, in Sydney, I used to teach scripture at, um, I've taught at various schools. And the very first high school I taught at was this um, public school called, um, this high school called St. Ives High School, and it's, uh, it's located in the North Shore of Sydney. That was my first school teaching scripture there, and it's actually my, my favorite school because I just had a lot of fun memories there. So when I first uh, started at the school, I realized very quickly 
that the volleyball program was atrocious. Like basically there was like no volleyball at all. No one knows how to play volleyball. No one knows how to teach volleyball. It was just like, it was uh, people only sign up for volleyball because they think it's a bludge sport. And for me, I was like, when I found out, I was so sad and I was so disappointed because volleyball is, is very special to me and especially um, high school volleyball because that's how I got into volleyball. It was high school. And actually it was because of high school volleyball that inspired my, uh, my love for Melbourne first. So when I was in year 10, my coach took our team down to Melbourne for this um, national schools tournament. It happens every year in um, the first week of December. And actually, sadly, they've moved it now to Queensland. Queensland. Anyways, so like my coach took us down and that was, um, it was just so inspiring. I was like, wow, I love, I love Melbourne and, um, and volleyball. And actually, now that I've moved down here to work in Melbourne and have met you guys, like you guys have cemented my love for, for Melbourne. So thank you for that. Anyway, so as I was saying, right, I was just really sad and disappointed that there's like no volleyball in high school. And I really wanted to like show these students how awesome volleyball is, that it's even like it's better than basketball and soccer and, um, and European handball was pretty big in, in that school and I just wanted to show them like volleyball is better than European handball, at least on par type of thing. And so I was thinking like how do I, how do I like do this? Like no one likes volleyball, like how do I get a group of people and show them just how good volleyball is? And then I remembered like oh Melbourne, like so what I did was um, I just asked a few girls who I was teaching. I was just like, um, and I asked them, hey, do you want to go to Melbourne? And they were like, yeah. And I said, okay, but we're going to learn how to play volleyball. And they said, okay, yes. And so this was the beginning of my coaching career, right? Like I started with about seven to nine girls. And like, you know, um, I told them, look, we're going to commit to training about two or three times a week. And surprisingly, they actually showed up. I was like, oh, great. I was like, all right, girls, we're going to go to Melbourne, but we have to learn how to play volleyball because otherwise, you know, it's going to be very embarrassing if we lose poorly, like 25 nil every single set. It's like not going to be good. So we have to focus. We're going to learn how to play volleyball. We're going to play volleyball. When we get to Melbourne, it's one week. You just play two to three games every day. And then afterwards, you can do whatever you want, like um, explore the city, like, whatever. I don't care. Anyways, so, so that was like the goal was Melbourne, but we're going to focus on, on learning how to play volleyball. And I told them, I told these girls, look, you have to trust me, all right? It's really interesting. I don't know if you guys like know much about volleyball or experience it yourself, but it's really interesting when you first teach volleyball, right? You'll notice that a lot of beginners actually, very instinctively, when the ball comes over, you want to send it back straight away. It becomes like a tennis match. When you watch amateur volleyballers play, it's like a tennis match, but that's like the worst thing you want to do. So as a team, right, what you want to do is you really want to drill into their mind. You have to do three hits. And so that was like, like for the first many months, like I keep drilling into these girls' heads. I'm like, girls, look, we're going to lose, but it's okay. What we need to focus on is we have to do three hits. It is for our good. And so and surprisingly, these girls, they would listen. They're like, we're going to try. Like, it was very hard, like, at first to break through that mental barrier. But they tried and tried and tried. And after, I don't know how long, I was seriously like, everyone was crying because it was that bad. But they tried and tried and tried. And eventually, one day, it happened. It worked. And then it was really cool to see. Once they understood the concept and how it works and how you do it as a team, suddenly, everything changed. Like, the, the rate of improvement just shot up so quickly and even individually in their skills as well, they improved so much as well. Now, what I want to get at is that in general, humans don't like change, yes? And humans don't like doing things that they've never seen done before. 
just like my volleyball illustration. And so far, I've yet to stand corrected. When you watch someone play volleyball for the first time, it's very natural for them to want to send the ball um, straight over the net. It takes a lot of encouragement to change people's thinking. I had to keep telling my students that the first many, many games will be hard. Keep the ball in our court. We'll probably drop the ball. We won't pass it properly, blah, blah, blah. But we need to keep working at it to do three hits well. It was hard because for the first few months, we honestly really did lose badly. My students were discouraged and some probably thought about quitting. But I kept reminding them, the goal is Melbourne. You got to trust me. The only way in volleyball is three hits. And so likewise, obeying God's commands feels a lot like that sometimes, yeah? God's commandments, they don't feel natural to us. When we're stressed, we want to default to our old ways. It just feels easier to, to lie or rely on ourselves or get angry and just snap at others. But if we love God, we need to trust in what he says too. We need to obey his word. And one day, you'll finally get it. You'll finally get why the best way is always God's way. And one day you'll see that it's not burdensome to live out God's commands. And you'll truly experience the joy of following him. So when we live a life of faith, we'll receive a life of love. The second thing we'll receive is a life of victory. 1 John 5 verses 4 to 5 says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John tells us clearly that because Jesus has overcome the world, then by faith, we also can overcome the world. I said we also can, rather than have, overcome the world because some of us are still living as if we, we haven't overcome the world yet. By overcoming the world, the Bible is talking about not letting the ways and values of this world control us. Now, there's a lot we can talk about on this subject. So just to narrow it down, I've decided to use um, a passage from the beginning of the Bible. And so hopefully it can uh, draw out, so hopefully we can draw out some pra 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 practical, sorry, practical application related to this topic. Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells us how sin came into the world. And when sin came into the world, sin controlled the world and our lives. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, records God's curse on humanity and creation. Now, this isn't like some kind of Disney movie where an evil person, like a witch, um, puts a curse on this really cute, adorable baby. This is God pronouncing the consequences of sin. Are you guys with me? It's like God had warned them earlier. God had warned them about what would happen if they disobeyed and eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. And now, Genesis 3, God now gives them a warning of what's to come. Now, I won't read the passage, but I'll give you a summary in relation to the curse on man and woman. So, women will have pain in labor, specifically childbirth. They'll desire their husband, but the husband will rule over them. Men will also have pain in labor, but specifically work. Now, let's not separate the curse on genders here too much because times have changed, but God's message doesn't. Clearly, and we see for a fact today, 
clearly that because of sin, we have issues with relationships and work. So let's talk about relationships first. Isn't it funny that with the advancement of technology and social media, we're supposed to see an improvement in our connection with people and therefore improvement in relationships. But if we observe the world and go out and talk to a few people, you'll quickly see that this isn't the case. Not too long ago, I saw an article headline. It just says, half of young Australians feel lonely. Yes, it was a very cheap headline grab, but I don't think they're wrong. I've talked to a lot of teenagers and young adults who've directly and indirectly told me that they're either bored or lonely or both. There are so many stories of breakups and divorces and infidelity. Something's not right here. The way teenagers are approaching relationships, whether romantic or platonic relationships, are changing too. To be honest, I'm a little nervous about our next generation, our gen alphas coming through. Now, did God know this would happen? Of course he did. He already called it in Genesis 3. He talked about how husbands will try to rule over their wives. So let's be honest here, though. All of us are trying to control each other, yes? That's what sin is. Sin is our inward desire to rule. And one of the manifestations of sin is control. We want to control our environment, We want to control the course of our lives. We want to control people's responses to us. Have you guys ever met a bossy person before? They just tell you outright what they want from you. Have you guys been in a toxic relationship before? Chances are that person wasn't bossy, but they know how to manipulate you to bend to their will. I think technology and social media has exasperated this, uh, this because phones and apps like Instagram gives us the illusion that we can be in control. I control when I reply messages or who to ghost and whatnot. I control what parts of my life people can see about me. I can even create an avatar and be someone completely different. I'll just troll people online or do some catfishing because that alleviates my boredom. Yes, we do have control over our phone and our apps, but we don't have control over people. And we definitely shouldn't try to control or manipulate others. But sadly, we still do. When we live a life of faith, a faith that declares Jesus is Lord and that we want Jesus to be in control of our lives, we try to let go of controlling others. We accept the fact that Not everyone will like us. We accept the fact that we can't engineer relationships according to our desires. And we accept the fact that we might get rejected too. But that's okay. It's okay because Jesus has overcome the world, which means the world's standard of relationships doesn't apply to me anymore. My values of what it means to be in a relationship or friendships are based on the Bible and not what TV shows or what social media is showing me. Now, I wish I can elaborate more on this, but we'll go over time. Have a think on this, uh, this subject and feel free to chat to me after if you would like any clarification. The other part of the curse uh, I've identified is pain in work. Yeah, the two labors, right? Pain in work. So... Okay, so I promise you that I'm not usually on TikTok, but when I do jump on TikTok to do some research, I love watching um, 
yeah, actual research. Um, I love watching videos about people complaining about work. And it's really funny because it's true, right? Um, and just to clarify, everybody, I, I love my work, okay? I just watch these TikToks from my friends' perspective. So, look, um, you might be hating your job at the moment, and I'm sorry um, if that, that is the season you're going through right now. Uh, if you're loving your job at the moment, and I guess that's me, the reminder is there's going to be moments when, uh, when you won't like your job. And I'll be the first to admit that my time will come. I'll face challenges and setbacks, and there'll be areas of frustration in my work. There are lots of factors that may contribute to our frustrations. It could be our relationship with our boss or co-workers, or it could be a feeling a lack of purpose, or work isn't matching up to your expectations. Or it could be a pride thing, as in you expect work to match your status, which is also true in relationships. Now, the subject of work is a big topic, and, and I'm afraid I don't have time to delve deeper, but I want to um, circle back to our theme today. Living a life of faith gives you victory, victory to overcome this world. What the world teaches us about our relationship to work is very different to what the Bible teaches us about work. For starters, our work doesn't define us. Secondly, our pay does not equate to um, our output and purpose. And thirdly, the Bible gives us wisdom to how we can use our finance as well. I hope in the future we can do a series on work because I know we spend most of our lives working and so it's a big part of us. Relationships and work are a big part of our lives. Sadly, sin distorts our views and values and it impacts our relationship to others and ourselves. But Jesus has overcome this world. Amen? He has defeated sin. So let's not let worldly values dictate how we should live. Let's live our lives like Jesus would because that's the way heaven will be. Now, finally, uh, when we live out a life of faith, we'll receive eternal life. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 12 tells us, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, the testimony that John speaks of is found in the verses just before this. He talks about the Spirit and Jesus' blood and water. Jesus' blood and water refers to his baptism and death. At Jesus' baptism, the Father declared Jesus to be his Son, and the Spirit also came upon Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is also proof that he has defeated sin and death. Nothing can hold him down. John 3.16 tells us that if we believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, we will not be condemned but have eternal life. Now, a lot of people don't like this idea of living forever, even if it's forever in heaven. I wonder how you guys feel about this. Living forever in heaven. Has anyone um, heard or seen of this TV show called The Good Place? Yeah, a few. Yes. <laughs> I, um, I thought the show was pretty interesting because it looks at this idea of like these people end up in the good place, which is heaven, right? And I think one of the themes that the director and the writers were trying to talk about is that like in the show, it, it explores like these people are in the good place in heaven and now they have an eternity to do all these things, right? But it seems like what they're showing is that, wow, you have eternity to do everything that you want, like go do a pottery class or like, I don't know, um, 
learn to mix mocktails or whatever. You do all these things, but because you live forever, right? One day you'll get bored as well. And so what I think that they're trying to show us is that like one of the themes and ideas they're trying to think about is that, wow, like that heaven is also a source of suffering. And so then the best solution is like, like the happiest thing would be actually we should cease to exist. Does that make sense? What the, that's the show, what the show was trying to get at. Now that kind of thinking is actually quite, um, it's quite postmodernistic and very individualistic on understanding what, uh, or what heaven is like. Now the Bible doesn't say this as all. This is like what the, not what the Bible teaches us. Firstly, the Bible does teach us that everyone lives forever. Every single person who's ever lived in this world will live forever. But those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will live with God forever. And we're told that when we live with God for eternity, there'll be no more sin, which means there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no toxic relationships, and no frustration at work. We will finally be restored again. All our shame, inadequacies, and uncertainties will be gone. We'll finally live our lives to the fullest. We'll finally understand what it means to truly love and be truly loved back. Heaven will not be a boring place. One of the most joyful things about being a Christian is that we have hope. A hope that knows this world is not going to end. That the weak will become strong. That the poor will become rich. And that the, the outcast will be given an honorary place at the table. My friends, can you see that living a life of faith is the best life to live? You'll receive love and in turn love others as God loves us. You'll receive victory to overcome the soul-crushing values of this world. And you'll receive eternal life to finally rest in our loving Heavenly Father's arms. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much. Firstly, for my brothers and sisters here, thank you so much for gathering us this morning to worship together, to praise your name. And Lord, your name is definitely worthy to be praised because Lord, you are love. And Lord, you have overcome sin and death and you've given us this new victory in this world. And we thank you, Lord, also that through your death and resurrection, we can have eternal life. Father, I, uh, I want to pray for everyone here today, this morning. Um, I don't know what everyone's going through, but, um, but I know that life is quite challenging uh, sometimes. And I pray, Lord, that this morning, once again, your Holy Spirit will, will remind us that through you, Lord, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome the sin and the brokenness of this world. We know that when we have you, Lord, as, um, as ruler and king of our lives, we know that these, these so-called worldly values can't affect us. We want to live in your kingdom, Lord, and we want to live out your kingdom values because we know that it's these values that, uh, that will continue forever. We know that in heaven, it's not about who has the most money in their bank accounts. It's about our relationship with you, deep, authentic, meaningful relationships with you and with our fellow brothers and sisters as well. Father God, I just really, um, yeah, want to pray for those who might be hurting, broken right now. Lord, I pray that they would 
know and sense your presence in their lives. Help them to see that you love us so deeply and that you care about every single aspect of our lives. I pray, Lord, for our week that no matter what's coming ahead, I pray, Lord, that every morning we wake up and the first thing we remember and we speak out the name of Jesus and we praise you, Lord, because you are the one who sustains us. Um, Your grace gives us the power and energy to continue to face whatever comes our way. God, I pray for a blessing over every single person um, in this congregation here. We pray that you will continue to guide us, help us through uh, each and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.